You're listening to the Sunnybrook Community Church Podcast. To learn more about Sunnybrook Church, including our Sunday gathering times and opportunities throughout the week, visit us online at sunnybrookchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Laurie Venkura. Well, good morning. If you are joining us for the first time or maybe haven't been here in a couple of weeks, we are in the middle of a series called The Grudge. Now, Pastor Jeff started us off the first week of this series with helping us learn how we can forgive ourselves, let go of the grudges that we have against ourselves, and the shame that can come along with that. Last week, Lydia knocked it out of the park when we talked about the gap of small offenses and how we can let go of the bitterness that that can cause us to have toward others. Now, today might be a little more challenging because this is a subject that we sometimes don't want to even admit, and that is having a resentment against God. Now, I don't know where you stand in your relationship with God. Uh, Maybe you are struggling with whether he even exists. And if that's you and you're here today or you're watching, uh, I'm so glad that you're here to hear this message. Maybe you're just beginning to explore faith or perhaps you've walked faithfully with God for years. But chances are wherever you are in your relationship with God, at some point you've asked yourself this question, why would God allow blank? And you fill in the blank, whatever that is for you. Or why would a good God do this thing And it's something that you really just cannot seem to wrap around your brain. Now, we do this in generalities all the time. Why would God allow there to be starving children in Africa, for example? Or in today's times, why would God allow this horrible pandemic that is causing people to suffer so needlessly? In essence, we want to ask the question, why would a good God allow evil to reign in this world? Why doesn't he do something? And so our whys become the reason for not believing in God or for trusting in God. Now, we can take these why questions also to a much more personal level. Like, God, I've really been praying for a spouse, someone to walk along in this life with me, and you just haven't answered my prayers. God, why didn't you heal my spouse? God, why did my child have to die? God, why aren't you doing that thing that I know you could do? It's within your power to do. And so we want to trust God. We really do, but we just find it difficult. And we find ourselves either slightly or not so slightly becoming disappointed with, angry at, or completely resenting God. And again, we want to trust him, but we just can't seem to get past why he won't act when it's within his power to do so. Now, sometimes we don't even want to admit that we're mad at God or that we're angry with God or that we're disappointed with God because after all, he is God. And so we might squish those feelings. We might suppress them. We might sweep them under the rug, if you will, but they're still there. They're just lurking beneath the surface. They're smoldering. They're simmering. They're corrupting our relationship with God and eventually our relationships with others. So here's the question for today. What do you do when you realize that you might be holding a grudge against God? That's what we're going to tackle in our time together today. Now, I've always been a believer in God's sovereignty. From the time that I received Christ as a little girl, 
Uh, it's just been easy for me to believe that God is overall and that God is above all. But this can become very problematic when bad things start to happen. Because if you really think about it, if you believe that God is sovereign but bad things happen, then at the best case scenario, God allowed that bad thing to happen. At the worst case scenario, God caused that bad thing to happen. And so we find ourselves kind of struggling in that with God, why would you allow that to happen? And the truth is that every single one of you at some time or another in your life are gonna face something very personal and very painful where God could have prevented it and he didn't, or he could fulfill it and he's not. And I'm really glad that I get to share this message with you today because I've experienced both sides of this coin on a very deep and personal level. Now in 2002, I faced a series of events that very nearly caused me to lose my sanity. In January of that year, my then husband of 18 years informed me, shockingly, that he did not want to be married to me anymore. I was completely blindsided. But in that moment, I just really thought to myself, I think he's going through a midlife crisis. And so I agreed to a separation and began to pray that God would heal our marriage. And so we had some kind of times where we were working on reconciliation. And then just a couple of months after that, my mom, who was my best friend and greatest confidant, she was really supporting me through this separation, found out that she had a very rare and aggressive form of ovarian cancer. And so my prayers for my, my marriage to be healed, and then I'm praying for my mom to be healed, and I absolutely believe that God could and would do both. But then my prayers went into overdrive as I found out that my husband had a girlfriend, and things started to click. And I might not be the brightest bulb in the package, but I honestly believe that still God was going to remedy the situation. He just needed some time and space, my husband did, for God to be able to work in his heart. So I really began to focus on my mom's situation. We walked through radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, and treatment. But just four months after she was diagnosed, my mom passed away. Now, God did not choose to heal my mom here on this earth. And it wasn't looking too good for my marriage either. But then the death blow. A month after my mom passed away, I found out that my husband's girlfriend was pregnant. Now, what I failed to mention earlier is that for 18 years, I'd been praying to have a child. We had tried some different things. We'd been fervently praying and just had agreed maybe we just need to wait upon God and we would be parents later in life. But now, it seemed as though God was allowing this woman to bear my husband's child. Now, up to this point, I had done my utmost to really hold in all those why questions and exchange them for trust in God and trust in his plan but I could no longer hold in the deluge and the dam burst and I was full on mad at God. God, how could you let this happen? Why? I've trusted you. I've waited for so long. God, why would you take my husband and my mom at the same time? God, would you, why would you let that woman have my baby, my husband's baby? God, why would you hurt me like this? Why would you hurt me like this? 
I mean, isn't this the question that is at the heart of every single grudge that we hold against God? Why would you hurt me like this? See, we mistakenly believe that somehow God owes us this pain-free existence. But that is simply not true. Now, I want to invite you to uh, dive in with me to a story from the Old Testament about a woman named Hannah who had some very real disappointments, who had to deal with this question herself, God, why would you hurt me? And I think that from her story, we can glean some very real truths that you and I can take to heart to help us deal with the disappointments and the resentments that we might have against God. We find Hannah's story in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. So if you've got your uh, Version Bible app or you want to follow along the story on the Sunnybrook app, that would be great. But I want to give you a little background before we start. So Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah. Now Elkanah had two wives. So there was Hannah and Peninnah. Now if some of you guys just thought when I said that, ooh, that might be kind of cool to have two wives, I'm thinking you're probably not married. Because if you're married, you know that one spouse is plenty to deal with in this life, right? So we're not dealing here with the bachelor where you get to make out with two women and you go home and everything's okay. I don't know what the heck's going on with that show, but no, this is not the bachelor. <laughs> this is real life. And this guy's got two wives and there's an incredible rivalry going on with these two wives. So let's take a look at the story. We're going to pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah, and she would make fun of her, it says, because the Lord had kept her from having children. Now, I want to pause just a moment at this point, because there's two things I think we need to understand right here. First of all, it's clear. It says the Lord had kept her from having children. So this was God's doing. And I think Hannah understood that. The second thing that we need to understand was in Jewish culture during this time, for a woman to bear children was everything. It was her identity, it was her worth, it was her value, it was the chief aim of all women to bear children for their husbands, particularly sons. That was a big deal. So Hannah has been prevented from doing the very thing that their culture deemed most important. So let's go on. It says, year after year it was the same. Penny and all would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Now, maybe you've had some of these kind of family celebrations where you're all getting together and some kind of drama happens and someone's reduced to tears and they get up from the table and they won't eat and the whole holiday is ruined. Well, that's essentially what's happening here because this family, Elkanah and Peninnah, which she had a bunch of rugrats by this time, by the way, and then you've got childless Hannah going to the tabernacle in Shiloh to worship. It's a very much a holiday celebration. And you end up with Hannah in tears after this. She was so grieved that she couldn't even eat. Now, I want you to picture the dialogue that might be going through Hannah's mind at this point. More than likely, she was asking, God, I don't understand why I've been faithful to you. I mean, I saved myself for marriage. I read my Bible every day. I come to the early service at church every week. I work in the two-year-old room. God, I've been faithful to you. And there's all these other women that don't even love you, God, and you're letting them have children. Why won't you let me have children? 
She's a very godly woman who is just trying to please God and she doesn't understand why he's not blessing her. And then on the other hand, you have Peninnah, who's kind of the mean girl. I mean, she's the, she's the girl that your mama warned you about. Stay away from her. She is as mean as a junkyard dog. Now, the reality is she probably was taken on as a wife to Elkanah because Hannah wasn't having children and he had to produce an heir. So he married Peninnah. But she is only contributing to Hannah's sense of worthlessness, her great grief, and her shame as she publicly shames her. And that's where we're picking up in this story. So let's look at what happens next in verse 8. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? I mean, it's only the single most important reason for her existence at this point, right? But he's asking her that. You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Now, I'm sure that Elkanah was only trying his utmost to be an encouragement to his wife. But men, please learn this right straight from the Bible. Don't be a dude. I mean, this is the most dude-ish statement I've ever heard. You have me. Isn't that better than 10 sons? I mean, that goes right along with asking your wife, is that what you're wearing? Or did you mean to do that to your hair? (laughs) Don't ask that. Not cool, dude. All right, let's go on and see what happens. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. And Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. Now we can see in this passage exactly what Hannah did. And it's something that you and I can take to heart when we struggle in our own grudge against God, and that's this, is you simply cry out to God. Cry out to him. Hannah did this. She did not hold anything back. She just let it rip. She unloaded on God. She took all the pain and all the hurt and all the disappointment and all the agony that she felt. She just hurled it recklessly toward God. If you ever find yourself hurting or feeling disappointed in God, Just tell him how you're feeling. Let him know. Pour your heart out to him. He is big enough to handle your hurt. Now, we see this time and time again throughout the Bible. We see David in the Old Testament when he says, God, why aren't you stopping my enemies? Why are you allowing them to taunt me? Jeremiah does it when he cries out to God, my heart, my heart, I writhe out in pain. My heart pounds within me. I cannot be still. Sounds like a panic attack to me. Even Jesus on the cross of Calvary cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? See, God loves you and he understands your pain. I believe that God would rather you yell at him and cry out in your anguish and tell him how you really feel than to stuff it under there, pretend like you're not feeling that and allow it to cause a chasm between you and your heavenly father. Take your pain and cry out to God. That's precisely what I did when I struggled with my own anguish. Here are my exact words. God, I'm mad at you. And then I just proceeded to tell him all the reasons why I was so disappointed and so angry and so resentful toward him. It was my most base feelings, not my best moment, I'll admit. But I gotta tell you, 
It was so liberating, so freeing to just be honest with God. I mean, he already knows how you feel. So why wouldn't we just be honest with him? And the reality is when you are honest with him, something amazing, something powerful happens. It sort of breaks down those walls, those barriers between you and him and actually draws you closer to him and allows you to have more intimacy with him because you've shared your most base and guttural feelings. Now let's look and see what happened with Hannah next. What did she do after she cried out to God? It says, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and she said to her, how long are you gonna stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was just pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And so Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Now Hannah's grief was so great in this moment that Eli thought that she was drunk. But she told him, no, that's not true. And what was happening in this time is that she was praying so fervently for God to remove the reproach of her barrenness that she promised God, if you will just give me a son, God, I will dedicate him to you. That is what her prayers were. Now, I have to say, the next thing that we see from this is that Hannah simply chose to continue by faith. She cried out to God in the midst of that. And I got to say this, it really makes me chuckle sometimes when I read this passage, because ladies, isn't this just like us? Sometimes we just need to have a big, old, ugly cry, right? The one where your face gets all red and distorted, and you've got tears mingled with all the snot coming out, and you're wailing in such a way that people think you're about to die. So you get all that crying out, and then we done. We stop. We brush ourselves off. We wash our face and we just move on. And that's exactly what Hannah did in this. She continued in faith. She had her say. She cried out to God. She did her part and the rest, she just thought, well, it's up to God. She moved on and she waited. Now, maybe you can relate. You've been praying and praying for the salvation of someone that you love so deeply and Nothing seems to be happening, so you wait. Maybe you've been praying for someone in your life to be healed, and you're believing God for that. You know that he can do that, but it's not happening, and so you just wait. Maybe you have been praying to God and working diligently for a job that has benefits so that you can better support your family, and you think you have something right on the horizon, and then it just slips away. So you find yourself waiting Maybe you've been dealing with extreme depression for years and you've prayed so fervently, God, please take this darkness from me. And yet, year after year, you still struggle. But you're waiting. Maybe it's someone that has been waiting for a companion and a partner to share your life with and you just don't understand why God won't bring that person into your life. Maybe it's a marriage that you've been praying for. Maybe it's a financial hardship 
that you just have worked and prayed toward and you just feel like you're going to get over the hump and then something else happens and knocks you down to the ground. You've been waiting and nothing is happening. And so then one day you wake up and you're wondering, God, where are you? I mean, I've been trusting you. I've been waiting. I've been praying, but nothing is changing. Where are you? Do you even hear my prayers? God, do you even care? You're praying, you're believing, and you wait. Friends, let me remind you today of this truth. A waiting season is not a wasted season. A waiting season is not a wasted season. Because God is still sovereign. God is still faithful. God is still good, even in the waiting. Now let me show you the very next thing that Hannah did. As she was waiting, she worshiped God. Look at verse 19. It says, the whole family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. You see what Hannah was doing in the waiting? She just continued to worship God. She chose in that moment, although nothing had changed in her situation yet, but she chose to take her eyes off the reproach of her barrenness and instead focus them on God and his almightiness, his sovereignty in her life. All she did was pray. All she did was worship. All she did was bow down, just as we sang earlier. Now, we see later in Hannah's case that God indeed did answer her prayers. She actually had a son, and she named him Samuel, and then she dedicated him to the Lord, sent him to live with Eli in the tabernacle, and he became a great prophet of God. Hannah learned in that moment that God's denial is not necessarily permanent. His delays are not necessarily his denials. And just because you don't see it, It doesn't mean it won't happen. Now, it happened for Hannah, and it might happen in your life, but it didn't happen in mine. My marriage was over. My mom was dead. I never had a baby. But friends, I can assure you, no matter what the outcome, God is still good. Whether you can see it or whether you don't see it, the goodness of God is not based on that. It's not based on what we see or don't see. The goodness of God is based solely on who he is. Now, the one final thing that I believe is important as we wrap up with what you do when you find yourself with a grudge against God is this. You simply just got to forgive God. Whatever grievance that you're holding against him, you just got to let it go. Understand that whatever you've experienced, whatever hurt it is, whether it's something that God could have prevented and he didn't, or something God could have fulfilled and he still hasn't done that, there is purpose in your pain. I can honestly look back now on all the pain that I suffered during that year that I call the year of the valley of the shadow of death. And now I can clearly see how God equipped me and how he prepared me for what he would have for me in Sioux City. It has been exceedingly, abundantly more than I could ever ask or imagine, but there is no way I could have seen it back then. But in that moment, when I said, honestly, God, I'm mad at you, I also had to say, God, 
I'm mad at you, but I'm going to continue in faith. I'm going to worship you in God. Yes, I forgive you. I'm going to choose to trust you, even though I'm so very angry and frustrated. And when I did that, I'm going to be honest, I felt so vulnerable, just so humble. I felt like this little girl who was like, you know, this is God. I mean, he's intimidating. But I'm sitting here saying, I forgive you? That was hard. But it was like I was just crawling up in his lap and resting in his embrace. And here's the hard part about it. Let me be clear. God didn't need my forgiveness. And he doesn't need yours either. But I needed to forgive God. And so do you. And he didn't do anything wrong. But when we're able to forgive him, that sets us free to live in purity and to wholeness and to restore intimacy with God. So what hurts are you holding on to? What grievances have you just not been able to let go of? Don't allow them to continue to have that be a chasm between you and your heavenly father. Let today be that day that you come face to face with forgiving him. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at sunnybrookchurch.org or download the Sunnybrook Church app. And again, thanks for listening to the Sunnybrook Community Church Podcast. Thank you.